Hello loves and welcome back to Your Hero's Quest, where we talk all about the hero's journey, mythology, magic, and self-development. Today's episode is super fun and exciting, so please join me on this quest into the myth of dragons. Did dragons actually once exist? We are going to take an epic journey to attempt to answer that question. Quick side note before we delve in, when I first started research for this episode, I thought, oh, I'll just be exploring a few myths, maybe some literature, some art over the ages. Turns out there is so much about dragons woven throughout history from up to 75,000 years ago. There is so much dragon research out there, which is why this episode took me so long to make to get through all this research. And when I typed in the word dragon to JSTOR, which is a database of scholarly articles, it produced almost 65,000 results. So I feel like that in itself is a little tiny piece of evidence that dragons might actually be real. So when I was going on this research quest, it brought me down so many different rabbit holes, down so many different paths into this mystery. So we're going to explore it all. And that is the really interesting piece about dragons when we wonder, did they exist? And why are they so prevalent in our imagination today still, if they were just a mythical being? Modern zoologist Desmond Morins wrote, in the world of fantastic animals, the dragon is unique. No other imaginary creature has appeared in such a rich variety of forms. It is as though there was once a whole family of different dragon species that really existed before they mysteriously became extinct. Indeed, as recently as the 17th century, scholars wrote of dragons as though they were scientific fact, their anatomy and natural history being recorded in painstaking detail. So as he said, up until around the 17th century, dragons were regarded as real. Now, dragons are featured in mythologies and artwork and literature from literally almost every culture around the globe, which I think is a major part of why people have been questioning, okay, did dragons actually exist? And I know you might be thinking, oh, well, they were just dinosaurs. The word dinosaur actually didn't come into existence until the mid-1800s. So it is possible that dragon bones became dinosaur bones, you know, these huge serpent creatures. We will get into that a little bit later. But for the purpose of this episode, we're going to be focusing on the mythological dragon. And my main focus is going to be on the Western dragon, although I will touch a little bit upon dragons from other cultures as well. So it begs the question, if dragons never existed, how are these cultures from all around the world over the millennia and centuries reporting on this same creature? And although there are some variations in its description, it is definitely the same creature that these cultures are talking about. Due to various reasons, it is very hard to prove the existence of the dragon, but keep in mind that there have been many animals thought to be legendary that had their existence proven. Okay, let's get into the myth and existence of the dragon. So dragons appear in the Americas, Europe, India, China, Mexico, Native American culture, and are described as early as the ancient Greeks and the ancient Sumerians. Dragon comes from the Latin word draco, and also from the ancient Greek word dracon. Draco in Latin means large serpent, and in Greek, serpent, giant sea fish, 
In Old Irish, there's the word adkundark, which means I have seen. That's also attributed to dragons because they have this very keen and sharp eyesight. And in Old English, the word worm, W-Y-R-M, comes from rue, which means to cover, defend, or guard. Okay, so dragon or dracon could be a snake. Homer's Iliad in the 9th century BC mentions it to be thus. Aristotle's 4th century BC history of animals notes that the eagle is an enemy of the dragon because it eats it. Greek, Egyptian, and Indian myths describe flying serpents, but as like a pegasus or satyr that were more in the realms of gods and heroes. The first to say that dragons could fly was Augustine of Hippo in around year 400 and says that they're Earth's largest animals that live in caves and come out to spread their wings. Ancient Greeks and Romans applied the term to large constricting snakes and by the Renaissance, the dragon was a fabulous creature due to myth, folklore, literature, and natural history records. Now, the Historiae Animalium was a five-volume encyclopedia of animals and a classic of natural history literature. The Western dragon is not directly related to the Chinese dragon. They are believed to have their own independent origin. And dragons were originally conceived as wingless and legless in Europe. And then in the second century BC, the dracone is described as a specific kind of snake for the first time. It's green and blue with a yellow beard and is non-venomous. There are all types of different dragons. There are mountain dragons, swamp dragons, sea dragons, water dragons. Many are black, red, ash, or yellow. They have sharp sight and hearing, rarely sleep, grow to old age, are known to guard treasure. And there are many stories and anecdotes of people befriending dragons and being saved or defended by them. In around year 200, Philostratus describes two types of dragons, the crested lowland dragon and the bearded mountain dragon. Augustine, again, was the first to say dragons fly. They live in subterranean caverns where streams flow and come out to take flight and are the largest living animal. By the 8th century, European artists were portraying dragons with wings, and they were standard in medieval bestiaries, which were these books of creatures, basically, that included both all real animals and also fantastical animals like dragons, griffins, unicorns, and any other kind of mythical creature you can think of. St. John of Damascus, who was a Syrian monk, wrote in his book called On Dragons, in around year 700, that dragons exist. They're born small, but grow to be big and fat. He says there's a kind that have a wide head, golden eyes, and horned protuberances on their back of their head. Also a beard protruding out of the throat. Now another second century work says that certain Indians kept a dragon that was 500 feet long and fed it oxen. And another source says that an Indian raised and fed two huge dragons that Alexander the Great went to visit. Apparently, he saw and met many strange animals while he was in India, one being a dragon. It was said to be a hundred feet long, which is about the size of two semi-truck trailers put together. When Alexander the Great went to see it in its cave, it poked its head out and hissed at him, apparently. It was said that its eyes were as large as shields. 
Apparently many dragons were also found in Ethiopia due to the sun and heat. Leo Africanus wrote that many large dragons lived in the Atlas Mountains in caves, and other large dragons live in the sunny side facing Alps. Emperor Octavianus is said to have had a dragon that was 75 feet long, and he would sometimes display it to the people of Rome in an open square in around the first century BC. Dio the Roman in year around 200 wrote the history of the Roman Empire and Republic, and he reported that one day Regulus, a Roman consul, was fighting against Carthage, and a dragon crept up and settled behind the wall of the Roman army. The Romans killed it, and by order of Regulus, sent the hide to the Roman Senate to be measured. They measured it, and it turned out to be 120 feet long. Now, Herodotus had heard of dragons, and he traveled to a place near Buto in Arabia, where he asks about them. And he doesn't find any dragons, but he does find some sort of water snake with wings like bats. In the 1500s, zoologist Conrad Gessner, drawing largely on Aristotle's history of animals, writes the Historia Animalium and says that dragons are very rare but still living creatures. Around that same time, maybe a little bit later, Italian historian Ulysses Aldrovandus wrote The Natural History of Serpents and Dragons. It was published posthumously in 1640, but he claimed to have received in 1551 a true dried Ethiopian dragon. He traveled extensively and collected all these plants and animals and actually opened, he had like the most fabulous cabinet of curiosities and opened the very first natural history museum. Now, according to Polish legend, that in the 8th century, a large dragon named the Wawel dragon lived in a large cave under Wawel Hill in Poland. And the Wawel Cathedral, which is 900 years old, still displays hanging from its walls large bones that are rumored to be the dragons. Now, there are many dragon sightings recorded throughout history. Here's a claim that might corroborate dragons being associated with meteors and breathing fire. Christopher Shore told Kircher in 1619 that he saw a dragon fly across the night sky when he was gazing at the heavens that was shooting sparks out of it. This was near Mount Pilatus in Switzerland. He says he also saw in 1654 an encounter between a hunter and a dragon. The dragon retreated with a rustling of scales into its mountain den. In 1499, there was another sighting of a dragon seen in Lucerne, Switzerland, swimming down the roofs from the lake, and it was apparently seen by many. Another sighting was a town in Germany near Niederberg. Townspeople saw this dragon flying in the skies for three consecutive summers. It burnt down the town and turned the well water poisonous in a close by town by bathing in its waters. The townspeople had to close up the well so people would stop dying after they were drinking from it. And near Lavinium, the south of Rome, in a banned forest, was a dragon that maidens would visit and feed and it would apparently tell them many secrets. There's another story of a dragon being reported being seen in 1572 in a small estate outside of Bologna in Italy. And this was reported to that Ulysses Aldervandus. And a herdsman killed it because it was very small and it apparently only had two legs. 
he gave it to Alder Vandis, who deemed it a juvenile because it was so little, but it had this reptilian snake body, and he displayed it for some time for people to come look at. Another sighting in year 1405, which was recorded in a book of chronicles in the eastern part of England. And this is a quote from the book. There has appeared to the great hurt of the countryside a dragon, vast in body with a crested head, teeth like a saw, and a tail extending to enormous length. In order to destroy him, all the country people around were summoned. But when the dragon saw that he was again to be assailed with arrows, he fled into a marsh and there hid himself among the reeds and was no more seen. Apparently the woods around Penlyn Castle, Glamorgan, Wales, has this reputation of being, well, had a reputation of being frequented by flying serpents that brought terror to all who saw them. One resident had said that in his boyhood, they were very beautiful, coiled when in repose, and looked as if they were covered with jewels of all sorts. Some of them had crests sparkling with all the colors of the rainbow. He said when they were disturbed, they glided swiftly, sparkling all over to their hiding places. He said it was no story invented to frighten children, but real fact, and attributed their extinction to being killed off since they would take or eat all these townspeople's farm animals. So all of that came from my research into the natural history of dragons, and I linked all my sources from this research down below. But let's move on to dragons in legend, myth, and literature. There's Tiamat, we have to mention her, from an ancient Mesopotamian Babylonian myth. She's the great dragon mother of the gods and of all of creation. And Marduk slayed her with an arrow through her heart and then used her body to create the heavens and the earth. As I mentioned, Homer's The Iliad was the first to use the word dragon or dracon, of course, we can't leave out the Bible, which mentions dragons many times. And there's Leviathan, who is this huge fire-breathing dragon. In the 4th century text, Acts of Philip, a great dragon appears. It claims it aided Solomon in constructing the temple. He asks to be spared and says that it will build them a church. When the church is completed, Philip sends the dragon and serpents into the wilderness. The dragon is also featured in many Old Norse and Old Icelandic sagas and in Beowulf, which is the oldest written poem in Old English. It was composed in the 8th century, but based on much earlier oral traditions. It's an Anglo-Saxon epic. And in this epic, Beowulf has already killed two monsters and becomes the king of the Goths. He rules wisely for 50 years until a slave awakens and angers a dragon when he steals a jeweled cup from its lair. The dragon breathes fire and burns the Goths' homes and land in revenge. Beowulf and his men go to the dragon's lair, which I think must be in a mountain because they climb to it. His men see it and flee in terror, leaving Beowulf and his kinsman Wiglet by themselves. Wiglet attacks the dragon and Beowulf delivers the fatal blow, killing and slaying the dragon. This is the first English myth or story to depict a dragon slayer. The story already existed in Norse mythology with Sigurd and Fafnir. Fafnir was this dragon that also was guarding some treasure hoard. And Sigurd is this hero of the story and he gets a specially forged sword and kills the dragon.
Another major piece of literature that has contributed to the dragon myth, especially how we see dragons today, was the Golden Legend. And this was a collection of medieval saint stories compiled in 1260. And this included Saint George and the dragon. Basically, there's a dragon that's terrorizing this village. And it's kept at bay by the villagers making sacrifices of livestock to the dragon. But when all the livestock get eaten up and they can't keep up with the sacrifice, they start to sacrifice people. So once a year, a human has to be sacrificed to this dragon and they do it based on a lottery system, basically like a pick out of the hat situation. So all's good and well until, because everyone's included in the lottery, the princess's name gets pulled out of the cup. So she's tied up waiting for this dragon to come eat her and George, who's this knight, comes riding in and slays the dragon, saving the princess. So this very much sort of catapults that whole princess, dragon, being saved myth. Another major literary passage that has contributed to the questioning of dragons' real existence occurs in the History of the Kings of Britain, written by Geoffrey of Monmouth in 1136 but he's recounting a much older tale. This book, and I've mentioned it many times before, is written off, no pun intended, as a pseudo history because no one knows where Jeffrey is getting his information and because it contains magic and Merlin and these sort of fantastical elements. But why not be real? Who knows, right? So in this part of the book, he recounts a story where a King Vortigern is attempting to build a tower in Dinas Emrys, which is a place in Wales. And they've actually found at that exact site ruins of a medieval tower that goes exactly with the story and lines up date-wise. So definitely could be true. And the tower keeps collapsing before its completion. His wise men advise him to find a child, a male child who has no father, and bring him before the king. Merlin is rumored to be such a child. He's found and brought before the king. Merlin tells him that the problem is there's a lake under exactly where they're building that contains two dragons who are fighting. And so, of course, they start digging and they find exactly that. They find a white and a red dragon fighting. Also mentioned in the history of the kings of Britain is of course, King Arthur and his father, Uther Pendragon. And Pendragon means the head of a dragon or head dragon. And he says that Uther acquired this epithet when he witnessed a dragon-shaped comet that inspired him to use the dragon as his standard. And he apparently brought a gold dragon into all battles for good luck. And of course, we have our modern literature, the famous dragon Smog from The Hobbit, who is also guarding a huge hoard of gold. Uther Pendragon's not the only king, leader, or person to use the dragon as a standard. In fact, it's been used on heraldry and coats of arms for millennia. Norse warriors painted dragons on their shields and would carve dragon heads into the prows of their ships. Presently, around 500 English and European families' coats of arms have dragons as representing them. They were seen on flags as early as the second century with Roman military. They used the Draco as a standard and the Draconarius meant bearer of the serpent standard. They'd also use a carved gilded staff with a dragon head on top of it. And the red dragon mentioned in that history of the Kings of Britain, it's been featured on banners and the Welsh flag since around 655. Another interesting place dragons have been found is on ancient and old maps. 
cartography has been around forever. And these maps that used to be drawn are so detailed and so beautiful, really feats of works of art. And actually, if you look at old maps, they have all sorts of curious things on them. It's a very interesting rabbit hole to go down. This particular map from 1450 is called the Fra Moro map. And it shows the Island of Dragons in the Atlantic Ocean. And an inscription near Herat, which is modern day Afghanistan, the cartographer says that in the mountains nearby, quote, there are a number of dragons in whose forehead is a stone that cures many infirmities. And he describes locals hunting the dragons for these stones. We're going to get into the mystery of those stones in a little bit. And then there's the Borgia map from around 1430 that features a dragon figure in Asia with an inscription. It looks just like a modern imagining of a dragon. The dragon is also featured in the sky in the Draco constellation. It's one of the largest constellations in the sky and appears to be coiled around the North Pole. There are a few different Greek myths surrounding the Draco constellation and it was first recorded by Ptolemy in the first century. It never sets, it's always visible in the North Hemisphere. And a very interesting thing is that from early to mid-October, a meteor shower known as the Draconids appear to come out of Draco's head. So it's like the Draco constellation is breathing fire. Further adding to dragons being associated even with maps <laughs> is ley lines. Ley lines are these energetic lines, grid, all over the earth. And they're called by the Chinese dragon lines. They were named that centuries ago. And when they cross, they are said to create a spiraling vortex of energy. Dragons are sacred in China. They say that the dragon's heart is where this energy center begins and the lines sort of branch out from there. They would actually plan how to build their villages and things around these energy lines. Also in China, ancients were said to have raised dragons. An emperor of the Song dynasty, recorded in historical records, was said to have some in his palace compound. And it's also interesting to note that the Chinese zodiac wheel includes the dragon. It has 11 real animals and the dragon. Why would it have 11 real animals and one mythic one? Because also on that wheel is the snake. So the serpent's already accounted for. Now back to these ley lines really quick. The rainbow serpent is a great energy current that goes over the whole planet and connects all of the earth's chakras. This is the female serpent current in Aboriginal myth. The other, the male, is called the plumed serpent, and they intertwine across the earth like a caduceus or kundalini energy. So this idea of the dragon, the serpent, like literally is encoded all over the earth. Now the dragon being a mighty and magical creature had many uses actually, and this could be why they became extinct. Many believe that they were hunted to extinction for these magical properties. Getting back to that stone that was mentioned in their head that these locals wanted, it is said that they had these splendidly fire-colored, beautiful stones in their head that had strong magical powers. It is said that guys who Cicero remembers had one of those stones crafted into a ring, and it's mentioned in Plato's Republic that grants the owner invisibility. 
Vero says one takes or uses three things from a dead dragon, the skin, the teeth, and the eyes that are the color of fire. The Cherokee people have a legend of a monster snake called the Uktina with a great blazing diamond in its forehead. And he who can win it may become the greatest wonder worker of the tribe. Its best use was for prophecy, but it was so powerful it had to be kept hidden away. Traditional Chinese medicine makes extensive use of dragon bones. Apparently the fat from its flesh dried in the sun heals wounds and sores. Mixed with oil and honey, it can improve eyesight and a bone from the spine can help toothaches. Many other things could be used in magic potions, but the list was too long. <laughs> Dragon's blood is written about by many doctors. It's not known exactly what it is. Currently, it is it refers to this resin that comes from trees in Africa that is blood red. But maybe in older ancient times, it actually referred to the real blood of a dragon. In the Norse story of Sigurd slaying Fafnir, he roasts the heart of the dragon. He touches it to see if it's done and it was hot, so he sticks his thumb in his mouth. And from this dragon's heart, he gains the knowledge of speaking to birds and basically the knowledge of nature. There is an herb named after the dragons called dragonwort, which is its common name. And again, that dragon stone was so powerful that magicians would go to the cave of the dragon induce them to sleep with magic and herbs to then slay the dragon and take that stone. It was well regarded by kings of the Orient and it was beautiful with many magical powers, so hard it couldn't be cut or polished. It had to always stay in its natural form. As for real dragon bones, again, we've got those bones hanging in that Polish church. There was also a, very recently, a beautiful head, and I'll put the picture up right here, of this ancient, animal that looks exactly like a dragon that was found near Sioux Falls in South Dakota and is now in a museum, but it absolutely looks exactly like a real dragon head. And they named it uh, after the dragon in Harry Potter. I can't remember the actual name of it right now, but pretty cool find. It is, of course, so hard to prove the existence of dragons now because they've been mingled with dinosaurs and we haven't found a real dragon except that dragon head from South Dakota, which I think is absolutely a dragon. And also the fact that perhaps they have really retreated to remote areas of the earth where they're not going to be seen or sighted. And of course, they do live in mountains and caves. So they're not just out and about all the time, at least not nowadays. Or again, because of their high value of medicinal and magical properties, they were hunted to extinction. And as mentioned by the 18th century, dragons were completely regarded as mythological. And this is when really the age of enlightenment and reason was taking over and magic and myth and mysticism sort of faded into history and legend. And dragons were totally a casualty of that. In his History of Serpents, Topsell says, writing in the end of the 16th century as the belief in dragons was declining, there's less sightings at this time. There's more traveling where they're supposed to be found and they're not finding them. People are like, oh, I'm seeing like serpents, but not real dragons in places like Asia and Africa where they're supposed to be. But Topsil says, least it, the dragon, should seem incredible as the foolish world is apt to believe no more than they see. So by the 17th century onward, 
Dragons have retreated into myth, allegory, symbol, and imagination. Of course, the dragon lives on in modern age in so many books and movies and television shows, and it just continues to cause and incite this beautiful imagination in this incredible creature that perhaps once actually roamed the earth, swam in the seas, and flew in the skies. Was this episode convincing? I hope that it at least opened your imagination and sort of sparked some curiosity for you. What do you think? Did dragons actually exist? Are all these people that apparently cited them crazy? Did people just make this stuff up for literature over the years? I'd love to know your thoughts. And even though it's hard to prove that dragons ever existed, if they did, they will continue to live on in these works of myth, literature, art, and of course, our collective imagination. In honor of these amazing creatures, I wanted to pull a card from the Star Dragon Oracle for our message to conclude this episode. I think I'm gonna do a unicorn episode next. Let me know if you like this kind of content. Okay, we got returning, going with the flow. Seasons change and the universe ebbs and flows. The constellations shift. And in the midst of the great changes of life, your ability to juggle whatever comes your way is seemingly the only constant. Move with whatever changes come your way. Flow with it, roll with it, be like water. By flowing and remaining in constant motion, this element breaks down even the mightiest obstacles. Wisdom of the dragon, I'm back. Spring to life better than ever. It is time for renewal. Return on the scene after a long recess to take charge and conquer. You are better than ever before. Fall goes to winter and turns to spring. You will rise again and return to the truth of who you really are. See the signs of change and rejuvenation in nature. How can you apply these universal principles to your own life? How can you be more adept at going with the flow? And when you reemerge from the cycle, will you make a grand entrance? Well, we certainly know that a dragon makes a grand entrance. They are a sight to behold. So take the dragon spirit with you from this episode, be your full true self, breathe your passionate fire and make that grand entrance in your life. Be that grand presence. Never play small, the dragon certainly doesn't. So again, I hope you enjoyed this quest. Like and subscribe if you did. Of course, drop your opinion in the comments. Thank you so much for joining me and I will see you in the next episode. Much love.